Hi, folks. Welcome back to the Idea Market Podcast. This is Michael Elias, your host, and I'm joined today by Connor McCormick, a friend who's given Idea Market and me some excellent advice and has thought about uh, the intersection of epistemology and technology a hell of a lot. Uh, he's the co-founder of Supersynchronous, which helps companies build internal systems that help them scale using Coda. Um, so he's got some very interesting operational knowledge, but we're going to talk more about that uh, knowledge tech niche. And Connor has specifically done a lot of thinking about something he calls claim markets. And I'm sure that we'll get into that a little bit more in the future. But the first thing I wanted to address is that in our little pre-interview chat, Connor used the word, the verb form of the word consensus, which is to consense. And I thought that was super pro. And, uh, uh, you know, he said that that's just, you know, what, what did you say? Why, why did you use that word? What were you about to say that then we hit record about? Yeah, this is why I asked you. I was like, I was like, all right, it's it's time to start because yeah, um, because my obsession here and, and my obsession with the claim market and also my role um, as it's becoming in uh, in supersynchronous is moving around this question of how does a collective group of people consense on what's true? And uh, if you run a company, then you recognize the need to do this on. A, uh, on a local level, right? You have to somehow have some sort of governance and decision-making mechanisms. Um, and then of course, uh, as you scale up that company to be a, a market or a state or a country or the world, there's this continual question of how do we come to an agreement on, on what is the case? And uh, of, of course, we're, we're uh, fitfully um, finding ways to get there at the moment. Um, but what I'm excited about is that we have all of this new theory that's been built up around consensus mechanisms, which is where we get, you know, our confidence in the fact that if I have a Bitcoin in my account, that nobody else is going to take it from me, right? That is built on this like Byzantine fault tolerance consensus mechanism. And my question is, is there a way to do something similar for beliefs, just like we did for the allocation of a currency inside of a inside of a network. Um, so is your, is your question, I just, I just want to tease apart the last thing you said a little bit and, and clarify um, for myself. When you talk about finding a Bitcoin type solution to beliefs, are you talking about um, at a collective scale, like reducing uncertainty or or uh, reducing uncertainty. Okay, is it about reducing uncertainty about the beliefs themselves, the content, or reducing uncertainty about um, what we believe or communication between different belief groups and populations and things like that? Yeah. So, or am I um, so total, totally missing it? Yeah. No, you're exactly you're exactly on it. I, I call it um, distributed adversarial causal modeling. Right. So, describing the world. Yeah, that's a fun uh, that's a fun phrase. Um, describing yeah, the world, that's a whole bowl of alphabet soup, right? There. <laughs> How we think that it works. Um, that's the causal modeling doing it in a distributed way. So anyone can participate. There's no elevated judges. There's no ivory towers. There's no, you know, like there, there, there aren't these things that we call, there are in effect experts, but there aren't, you know, people who have a badge that says like, they're allowed to do the, the process. So that's what distributed means. And then adversarial means that there will be people in this group who disagree with one another and argue with one another and have different incentives that are misaligned with one another. Um, and, 
those could be, um, they could be like sincere actors or they could be, you know, insincere actors like, um, you know, the classic example that I like to uh, play with is the story of Philip Morris and how they had this major incentive to uh, deceive the public about the health implications of cigarettes for a very long time. So that was an instance of um, a this, this company have a strong incentive to modify our collective causal understanding of the world, you know, the causal line that goes from cigarette usage to getting cancer, and how might we create a collective system that's inspired by or informed by consensus mechanisms is probably, it's definitely not, it doesn't look like Bitcoin, but it's inspired by the theory that sits underneath it um, that might uh, allow us to do this distributed uh, adversarial causal inference to, to come to an agreement awesome. on, on uh, what we collectively agree on. And then of course, also on the things that we disagree on where uh, we want to uh, invest more time to understand or more energy or more money. So it sounds like um, a cocktail of cryptographic consensus type mechanisms and uh, the ideas of democracy and uh, popular input, as well as science and adversarial um, or like game theory. observation definition game theory. Yes, and uh, you know, kind of, kind of combining all three of those things into something that works. And it seems like yeah. what you're describing is not a, a particular tool, but a category of tools. Like there could be a number of ways to do this or to facilitate this. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I have a, I have my own take on how to get there. And my hope is at least that my take on how to get there could be um, inspiration that it, that is possible. Um, but I definitely don't think that I've necessarily landed on exactly the right thing. Um, the general cool. category is um, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find the right, the right name for this, but I call it a veritocracy. So that, Oh, that's my favorite. That's my favorite coinage so far. Cool. Um, a, a veritocracy would be a, a system of governments that of governance that's predicated on uh, inference about what's true with, with like this major okay. caveat, major caveat that it's kind of a bad name because I don't believe that there is such thing as true. I only believe that there's such thing as the yeah. recognition of error, right? We can know that we were wrong, but we can never know that we are right. And so the problem with veritocracy, it seems it's, is it seems to say that what we're the, the work to do is to verify when in reality, what I believe yeah. the work to do in this kind of collective system is to find out that we're wrong. Gotcha. So it's almost like a veritocracy is about getting people to agree on what experiments to do rather than what's true, like in any kind of final sense. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that, that frees us, right? If we reframe this as instead of, um, in, instead of, us having our political sides, which we adhere to tightly, right? And nobody can attack. If instead we were defining the ways we could find out that we were wrong and everybody was doing that, we like things would advance much quicker. So I, I think you like this, um, a, a, a signal 
that we have built a good system would be that if it's true that the earth is flat, that we will find out that the earth is flat and we will come to collectively believe it. Now, I don't believe personally that the earth is flat. I have lots of friends that are flat earthers and I've hugely enjoyed uh, getting to spend time with them and learning from them. Um, they turn out to be uh, inordinately intelligent people on average, um, which is always surprising uh, to others. And they also turn out to be um, more knowledgeable about science than the, the, the average public is. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage you to go spend some time with them because uh, maybe you do. I get, you're, you're kind of in that, that zeitgeist of like, let's engage the people even who have crazy ideas. I love the people who have crazy ideas. And there are some that I don't like or some that I don't you know, know very much about or have friends who represent. And I, I don't, I don't know if I know flat earthers. I know some crazy people who might, might believe that. And I mean crazy in, in kind of a uh, endearing, term of endearment mm. kind of a way, not, not in a derogatory way. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to get more exposure to that community and, and see what I can learn. And I also wanna ask you what you learned from them, but I'm not sure if that's the track you started off on, maybe we should save that for a little bit later. Well, I think it's related um, because- okay. All right, go ahead. Part of what, part what, of why yeah, I, what have you learned from Flat Earthers? I mean, part of why I joined their their weekly meetup groups. Um, we would meet every Tuesday, and then it moved to um, Fridays, and then it became a Bible study because um, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so, um, like, I guess there's like a mixture of like, uh, and, oh, and then it also was related to QAnon and all this stuff. So I ended up being like part of. I was I was alerted to the uh, uh, the world of QAnon before kind of anyone else was. And I went because it kind of frustrated and annoyed me that there were people in the world that believed that the earth was flat, right? And I think that's a common response that people have. Is they're like, how the heck can anybody out there actually believe this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and of course, what I then discovered instead was uh, uh that it was surprisingly difficult for me to, um, you know, prove compellingly that the earth is round to people who desperately did not want to believe it with a deep recognition that I desperately did not want to believe that the earth was flat. Right. And so like yeah. living in kind of that tension, that really important epistemological tension of pragmatically, how would I, um, change my mind and believe that the earth is, is flat. And what would it take for this group of people to do the same? And the kind of incredible technology that emerged from that was, um, this idea of, uh, uh, critical thinking is the wrong frame. We tell people to be critical thinkers and, and critical thinking is like a terrible thing to advise someone to do because you never know when you're doing it or when you're not doing it. You always just assume that you're a critical thinker, right? So all of them believe that they're critical thinkers. I believe I'm a critical thinker. You believe you're a critical thinker. It will be impossible for you to find anyone on this planet who A, doesn't believe that they're a critical thinker and B, doesn't think that their opponent should be more of a critical thinker, right? 
<laughs> so there must be something else that we can practice and that we can advise that is like, you know, when you want to talk about fundamental uh, epistemological technology, language itself can be its own form of technology. It doesn't have to be a, um, a you know, a network in a, in a, in a, a cryptocurrency or a platform. It can be as simple as a tool set and an expectation. And the expectation that we found was that people should be able to, in our conversations, you should be able to say the ways in which you could find out that you were wrong. And, and, um, it's simple. I think at this point, like it's kind of like metabolized. That idea is pretty well metabolized, but that idea, I, I think, you know, Julia Galef, I don't know if you follow her. Um, she I've heard calls the name, it, but I don't know her work. She, she has the podcast, um, ration, rationally speaking. Okay. Um, and she has this book called scouts mindset which I have not read. Um, but it's this same idea, right? That you should be looking for ways that you could find out that you were wrong. Um, instead of working really hard to, um, you know, instead of soldier's mindset, which is like force everybody else to agree with you, win, right? The argument in, in a sense that winning the argument is finding out that you were wrong. If you're an epistemic agent, right? Yeah. Cause that's, learning. um, cause that's learning. And so, so, you know, we like traverse this path through the flat earthers, discover this, like use this technology on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the question is like, okay, this is actually really powerful. How might we embed that into, um, uh, uh, a governance model, right. That can be used, uh, in a distributed manner. How might we make it just the yeah. fact that you get more signal on your beliefs? if you sincerely state all the ways in which you could find out that you're wrong. Is there a relationship to futarchy? It sounds a little bit like Robin Hanson's suggestion of prediction markets for that exact, like similar kind of a deal. Exactly. Um, in fact, I've met with Robin Hanson twice now and, um, uh, he's told me that I need to convince him <laughs> to, uh, that this is something. Um, and my, um, my contention, in, in fact, I think that, that Futarchy is a way to like frame what's, uh, what, what I'm talking about. So Futarchy, for those who don't know, is a, um, it's a governance mechanism based on prediction markets. And so the basic thesis of Futarchy is it says the, our prediction markets tend to do a, a really accurate job of collecting information from lots of different people um, in many different perspectives and, and correctly aligning them and incentivizing them um, to give us the, the most accurate known belief about what's going to happen. So why don't we use that in our governance mechanisms themselves? And the classic example is that, you know, let's say that there are two mayors that are running against one another for an upcoming election. And there is a, a prediction market that says, um, uh, mayor, you know, Alice, mayor Alice is expected to have a lower, uh, um, uh, expected to have lower crime rates, let's say, than mayor Bob. 
And so um, you can either just make that information available to the voting public, or you could make that directly the vote, right? It had some sort of, um, it could have some sort of weighting system and then people could even make predictions. And, and ultimately in its limit, uh, Robin says that uh, you should have this high level market that people bet on that makes predictions about what will increase overall well-being, right? And, um, but I like for me, that has some practical uh, consequences and concerns. Um, the most important is um, this idea of this idea of sabotage. It's kind of obvious that um, one thing that Bob could do in order to uh, sway the market is Bob could hire a whole bunch of people for very cheap to go and perform a um, um, some, some crimes in town, right? Break some windows, throw some bricks. Um, it wouldn't cost Bob very much, but if the market could be convinced that Bob was going to do this, right. Um, or if the market just noticed that, okay, Bob has this track record with less, um, crime than Alice does. And it's because, you know, Bob has been hiring people to go and do this, uh, uh, this kind of like crime spree. Uh, this is an this is an example of sabotage, and um, you need someone to adjudicate whether or not there was sabotage, right? So imagine it now. Now, like you fix the market by saying, um, uh, "Okay, there's going to be a judge, and the judge is going to decide whether or not there was any there's any like foul play." But as soon as you introduce a judge, you're back to a classic judicial system. You're like, it's like a judicial system with just extra steps. Um, and, and so you haven't really introduced a new system of governance. You've just introduced a, a, a judicial system with a, a betting market on top of it, which in principle you can already make today. So my question is how do you bring those betting markets down all the way um, so that it's inference from the bottom to the top. It's, it's prediction markets from the bottom to the top, including a prediction market that's predicting whether or not there was foul play. Interesting. And you're talking about having like a self-referential network of prediction markets instead of having prediction markets that at some point rely on an axiom that comes from data or something that can be faked or played with in that kind of a way? Yeah, th this touches, it's a really good question because this touches um, this general issue, which is no matter what system you create, you have to figure out how the data got there onto the, the chain, right? So if we talk about a blockchain, everybody's like, we're gonna fix health data with blockchains, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, great. Um, uh, or we're going to fix, um, we're going to fix, uh, corruption with blockchains. Say, like, great. The problem is not actually the data. Once it's on the chain, the problem is how did the data get there? And so this is uh, the question of provenance. What is the source or the origin of the data and how do we know we can trust it? And what you must always, it, if you could find a perfect signal, like, let's just say that for whatever reason, 
you know, you could, you could point a Geiger counter at some data and, um, and you know, if it, if it made a lot of noise, then it was true data. If there was a true signal of, of accuracy, then, okay, of course this would be fine, but there's not, <laughs> that's the whole problem. <laughs> um, so we need some sort of, we, you have to perform inference on the data and find out whether or not it is, um, uh, trustworthy and, and so why not perform inference on all data, including on all inferences? You probably know this, but I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think that's awesome. Um, do you have an opinion about Chainlink's approach to this? Because they're kind of the uh, de facto leader in improving um, public knowledge, let's say, using on-chain data. I don't know their approach. Can you tell me about it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Their approach, uh, from what I understand, is they have data validators. Uh, for any data point, they have a variety of validators that are staking on their accuracy. And so if they report the temperature is 75 degrees, uh, but one out of five of them reports that it's 42 degrees, the 42 one gets punished. And the idea is to uh, have, you know, a proof of stake validation for data that then goes on chain and creates a supposedly trustworthy record of any kind of data, essentially, um, that uh, using cryptography is, is, is in theory, uh, cryptographically verifiable throughout history. So the idea is to kind of record the universe on an immutable ledger uh, and use that as the basis for things like journalism going forward. So is there a um, yield on the stake? Um, I'm not an expert on the economics of it. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I hesitate to provide any more detail than what I just said. Okay. So I'll take your description as a like tentative description. I'll go and do my own. Uh, yeah. Work. It's, the, it's the kindergarten level. Yeah. Version. Um, so the, the problem, I also explored, you know, a mechanism similar to this. The problem that you run into is that, um, especially if you offer a yield, but even if you don't, is that this ends up making it so that those who have the most money are the ones that get to determine what's true. And um, we, of course, want to enable the exact opposite of that process, right? It should be the case that um, the, uh, I, I, the, there's a principle which I use to point at the thing that's worth um, chasing down. And I would even argue that that principle is it's whatever the definition of the opposite of corruption is. And that single principle is that uh, persuasiveness should be equivalent to precariousness. So persuasiveness is your ability to change someone's mind, modify the world, change a law, um, whatever, right? And precariousness is the 
uh, position that you're in um, that like puts you in some way at risk. So one of the reasons that we trust betting markets is because someone has put money up, right? And they could potentially lose it. And because they've done that, we're like, okay, well, they must genuinely believe that it's going to go their way. In this case, we trust the market because the rule of, of persuasiveness equals precariousness was, was retained. But now let's imagine that instead it was a rigged market and they knew all along that the, that, you know, they controlled the judge, for example, and the judge was going to resolve it in their favor. Well, now that rule persuasiveness equals precariousness no longer holds because it's not a precarious market. They weren't actually risking anything. Right. So I, and, and I think that this is like a sufficiently general rule that I've found it kind of informative of evaluating systems. And in this case, in the chain link case, um, if you have enough money, then you can stake a whole bunch around a, you know, for a particular number, you stake for the temperature, right? And um, especially if you offer a yield, then you earn money for the fact that you staked, and then you can use that money to now stake some more. And so there's this feedback loop. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I, I may have been unclear about a detail that the validators get slashed if their data disagrees with the majority of, of, of reporting sensors, not like who has the most staked on them. Did I conflate those? Okay. So data. Right. So the, the, the data that gets written on chain as like quote validated by Chainlink is the, it seems to be the, um, majority opinion among validators and the exceptions get punished. Uh, and that's regardless of how much money is staked on any of them. And this is still like the eight bit kindergarten version. So I might be omitting some limbs here, but I, yeah, I and I'm open to like, general. I mean, yeah, uh, I, so, I think your, your point still holds because if you have more money, then you can buy more validators and just exactly the other ones. So I think and your, even your if you do, even if you do like, even if you solve for the Sybil attack, like you can actually identify individual real people in the world that are validators. You can't validate that they're not being paid by the person who wants them to stake a particular temperature in this case. Now, why is temperature so important? I don't know, but some other things are really important. And we can imagine that they're like, for example, the, the belief that cigarettes don't cause cancer. If there had been, you know, this sort of market at that time, then the dominant strategy, if you're Philip Morris, is to go to all those validators that are, you know, maybe they're running an experiment that's that's measuring uh, whether painting tar, this was the experiment that kind of shifted people's opinions and really freaked out Philip Morris, painting tar, uh, cigarette tar and acetone onto the skin of, uh, I think they were gerbils, would cause them to develop like cystic lesions like uh, or a... Uh, 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 like cancerous growths, essentially. And that was the moment when people were like, uh-oh, <laughs> something is not right with cigarettes. Now, if I was Philip Morris and Chainlink existed, I would just pay a bunch of people to upload a bunch of data that said, oh, no, don't worry about it. Um, you know, the uh, w we didn't see any of that cancer stuff, um, which is, of course, what they yeah. did. They paid a whole bunch of scientists and a whole bunch of research institutes to... Um, uh, published data that, that muddied the water, um, the fear, uncertainty and doubt strategy. And so 
that's how I would, if I was to be a nefarious uh, agent, that's how I would attack Chainlink is I would pay a whole bunch of people in the background to upload uh, faulty data um, and to, to set their stake. But of course, if their stake gets slashed, they already got paid on the back end, right? That stake yeah. that they stake probably came from me in the first place. Um, and we also know, of course, that majority that like, if, if something is popular, that does not make it true. Right. Um, in fact, almost definitionally, uh, uh, the vast majority of things that we now believe today were once not very popular. So we have to have a system where, um, uh, something can be discovered as being true, even if it's not only despised, uh, collectively, um, but also believed only by a handful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of inevitably, inevitably the, the position where that's inevitably the thing that that has to be done. Um, I really like the proof of precarity kind Ooh, of, I like that dis description that you were going with, like, cause, cause, because that's what it sounds like you're describing, that the hard part isn't establishing that there's some precarity. If you have a proof of, if you have, if you have a stake that you could lose, there's that much. But you also don't know the context that could be paying you or compensating you for it or whatever, bribing you. And so how do you prove that something is actually at risk? Have you, have you thought at all about alternative systems that are kind of, um, uh, undeniably or irrefutably precarious? Yeah. So this is, um, this is the thing that had me stymied for a very, very long time is, uh, it's always possible for you to circumvent the system and pay someone, bribe someone to, uh, you know, make whatever claim you want them to make. We have to take that as just something that is not only going to happen, but that we expect and we plan for right? Bribing. And so what kind of system, it, it forces us to try and answer the question of what kind of system is inherently bribe proof. And so I have a proposal. <laughs> the I'm proposal ready for it. Is, Let's hear it. <laughs> the proposal is embed your beliefs directly in your currency. Ooh, how would that work? How might we make it so that the currency that's in my pocket is actually semantically tied to the um, claims that I make about how, for example, how policy should change? So, so it's if always you want good to buy a beer at 7-Eleven, you have to agree with the cashier? So if you want to buy a beer at 7-Eleven, in yeah. some way, yeah, they are receiving your beliefs right? As payment or the yeah. currency that they're receiving is tied to your beliefs. Now, why is that preferable? If we look at like the Petrobras scandal in Brazil, the big problem that they ran into is that money, all money is the same color green. If I make my money from, uh, I think the, the, there was a, okay, let me, let me give the context for Petrobras. Yeah. I as I understand it. Story. Yeah. There was a um, oil refinery that was being that the government wanted to build, and they selected a particular firm to build it. Um, 
And the reason they selected that firm, it turns out, was that um, I think the firm was called like Oden, Odenbrecht or something like that. I think it was a German firm. Um, the reason they selected it was because that firm had hired, uh, well, had somehow ended up placing people inside of the government, um, had given them Hummers and uh, had bought them really nice houses um, in, uh, in Florida. So they'd given them all these gifts and because of that, they were selected to go and build the plant. Um, it was this crazy level of corruption. I mean, this like minor levels of corruption and like the idea of a revolving door. If you remember when um, uh, that the Fed had a bunch of people that were working in it that used to work for uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, and that it was that revolving door that because these people uh, and, and then vice versa, that the people who worked at the Fed would get nice, comfy jobs at Goldman Sachs or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac once they retired. That because they were regulating essentially their future selves, they gave themselves really nice um, uh, uh, regulations, right? The things that they would have wanted. Um, this is a, an example of regulatory capture. And it's, you know, it's the corruption problem in the world. And it's this form of bribery. Um, and so that's what was happening with Odenbrecht. Uh, and Petrobras, and uh, I think, uh, and, and, and then the Brazilian government was that uh, people were being paid who would then select them as the contractors, and then they made a, a whole bunch of money, and then they used the money that they earned from being selected to pay them back, right? Um, and you couldn't, of course, this, the way that they did all this is they laundered their money. So, you know, they would buy these gas stations and then and then pass money through it. Um, and they would give these indirect gifts. Like they would buy a house in Florida and then give that to somebody. And so the real estate agent would take home cash and then the person would receive a house. So you couldn't actually point directly to the cash. Now, how would this work differently if you embed your beliefs directly in your uh, currency? Well, what you do is you establish policy on the basis of um, staking money, right? So people would say, I believe that um, uh, Odenbrecht should be the one that gets the contract and now, and that they're going to complete the project, right? And so you, you stake your money through there. Now, when you go and pay someone, they have to evaluate whether or not they believe that that project is going to be completed, right? whether or not that stake is going to hold. If it, if it collapses at some point in the future, then their currency that they're holding that you're paying them with will also collapse, right? It will disappear. It's kind of like quantum money. And, um, also and, known as money. Also known as regular money. Um, and so that gives them every incentive to really evaluate the money that they're receiving. Now you might say, but it's going to be impossible for people in practice to evaluate whether every single different possible claim that people have staked is going to hold. And that's true. But of course, it's also impossible for people to evaluate, you know, um, uh, um, the entire chain of events that brought them their salmon in the, in the supermarket. And yet they have no trouble looking at the price and evaluating whether or not it's worth it for them to accept. And so that's what I would propose is that we can have 
these intermediate markets, which are making bets on whether or not a currency is reliable, um, whether a particular claim is reliable, and then that could be informative to the consumer, right? Yeah, so you're saying in practice, we can kind of lazy load our relationship to these propositions. We don't have to actually spend a lot of time and effort on them. It's just like a, at a glance, do we think this is going to hold up before we spend this? It's it's a little bit like hot potato. And so it wouldn't yeah. actually be like every single cashier everywhere has to be a philosopher. Exactly. Very yeah, you, it, in fact, you just people just continue to be economic agents where they evaluate how expensive yeah. something is. Um, but then certain people who have strong beliefs about things can, uh, uh, you know, make claims. Now the details, I, I've thought through a lot of the details here and I'm not sure how well they would translate via audio or how good I am at, you know, extemporaneously, uh, uh offering them and all the reasons for them. Um, so there's a, there's a doc that kind of like encodes all of, all of the mechanisms and why they are the way that they are and how they relate to one another. Um, but I think that this simple idea of what if we encoded our beliefs in the currency that we use is an interesting one. Yeah, I think that's super fascinating. Um, would it also be possible to make money by being right about things and have the value of your belief currency increase? So you and I, I think, have different philosophies on this because you're building an <laughs> idea market around that idea of if you're early, you should be rewarded. Yeah. I'm taking the exact yeah. opposite approach, which is I'm saying okay. if you're sorry for you, it'd be if you're early and if you're right, you should be rewarded or, or if the rest of the world comes to agree with you. Right. I'm saying if you're wrong, it should be expensive and that's it. Okay. Interesting. So, so the reason that how does, oh, go ahead. How do you, okay, I, I want to I hear what you're about to say, but the question on my mind is, how do you detach one from the other? How do you like give a value that only goes down if you're wrong without having it also go up if you're anticipating value? You, like the mechanism is you have someone's stake and then you just slash their stake in order to pay for the person who uh, did the work that helped Got to it. resolve the disagreement. So. The way that I specifically encode it is that disagreement, if, if you believe X is true and I believe X is not true, both of us can stake money. This is called an entrustment. Um, there's a, there's, there's your, your, uh, next, uh, neologism of the, of the day. Um, is, is this your, neo, neo, your neologism? This is my neologism. There? I can Google yep. it. Nice. All right. Entrustment. Um, and an entrustment is an investment, but for beliefs. And what makes it unique from an investment is that it can only go down in value if you're wrong. Um, and so you, if you okay. and I both, if you, if you believe that something is true, then you'll entrust that is true. If I believe that something is not true, I'll, uh, I'll entrust that it's not true. And then there will be like these two piles of cash on either side of this claim, right? And um, uh, because of that disagreement, 
at least one of those piles of cash we can spend on um, paying someone to help us resolve our disagreement. But we don't know which one. So someone can come along and they can do some work. And if they submit it to the network, and if the network finds it informative via its own mechanism, um, then we can pay that person with whoever was with the money of whoever was wrong. Got it. So we're paying someone for the labor for research labor. And you can imagine that this yeah. becomes a solution to the problem of like, how do we fund basic research? Um, but also how do we fund really important research credibly, right? Here, what we've done is the people who believe that X is true have put up money and the people who believe that X is not true have put up money. Um, and so, uh, there's no incentive, like they're not being paid. They don't have a dole that's coming directly from Philip Morris. They have, uh, they are either going to, they're going to be paid by whoever ends up being wrong. Okay. So it seems like in order to maintain uh, like skepticism about provenance. Maybe the payment or like the way one of these would be settled. Cause it sounds, it sounds there, it sounds like there are some prediction market similarities only it's like the Oracle, not the Oracle. It's, it's like the Oracle type role gets paid by the loser and the winner gets nothing. Yeah. Um, and then there's like a Byzantine, like, there's like a Byzantine fault tolerance proof that you offer. We, we call those verifiers or maybe better they're disverifiers, right? Um, and they're the people, there's, a, there's some disverifier market um, where somebody gets selected, hopefully like in some random way. Um, and we can make some proof about like, what's the probability that Philip Morris has gotten to those people and has, um, so it's like jury selection, right? Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's like a networked, Networks jury selection in a way. Yes, um, I, I was like, gonna. I was about to ask if this if this modification would work. Um, if the what do you call the person who settles instead of the oracle in this case? The let's call them the verifier, the verifier, or the okay. researcher. Yeah. All right. So instead of the the verifier, the researcher, kind of automatically getting paid by the loser, maybe. What if the researcher only got paid if the uh, stakers on the side who is wrong removes their money? So it's not like it settles and the whole thing closes, but it's perpetual and the loss of confidence constitutes and defines the loss. And that's how the verifier gets paid by spooking, spooking, spooking them side of it. I would. Yeah. So then my question would be what, what, spooks financially what's the thing that spooks the people on the other side the people who are wrong I'd, wouldn't it differ on a case-by-case -case basis oh it would, it would oh you're you saying it's like be like a keynesian beauty contest it's fear that other people will be spooked um Oh yeah. So you could, that would be like the traditional market approach. You'd have like a literal currency. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that though. I think I like the prediction market version more where your stake isn't changed depending on what other people do. You only lose if you pull out. 
Um, the, but then why would anyone ever pull out is my question. Cause I think that could be a, I, I think this point. could be a valid, um, uh, alternative. Um, I, when, when I, when I thought like, I, and this is what I wanted to do as well. Like, how do you get people to voluntarily remove their money from the market? The problem is though, that you can't know, um, like they have no reason to ever remove it from the market because, yeah. because how do they end up getting slashed in some way? Someone has to get slashed, right? Right. The market has to resolve. So, but I think that there's like a, cons there's a consent part, which I think is credible, which is you want people to consent to being, um, uh, resolved against under certain conditions, right? You want them to say, I would be wrong if. So that's, the, that's what I call this layer that sits above. What we've been talking about is the claim market. And the claim market yeah. is like this simple mechanism that embeds your belief in your currencies. But then the causal market is that layer where people make specific statements about, this is what it would take for me to be wrong. And so that solves your consent problem, right? Because now they're saying yeah. like, like under these conditions, I would be willing to, you know, give up my money. And in some sense, it's kind of beautiful because it's them paying for the opportunity to find out that they're wrong. Right. Which yeah. not everybody would do, but I would do, you would probably do. I like the subjectivity of it, that it's not saying, um, it's not really outsourcing the decision to someone else to decide what constitutes being wrong. It's that people can, can participate in the settlement and not have a ruling made against them by some arbitrary, uh, party. Exactly. But then the question is, why would anyone ever make statements about how they could be wrong? Especially if they're a bad actor, if they're a sincere actor, if they're a true scientist, then sure. They're going to be willing to, I mean, this happens all the time in science. There was the famous, um, you know, when RSA, the encryption, uh, approach was created, uh, there was a bounty that was put out for anybody who could break it. And, um, you know, it was, it's this classic example of science being so interested, or in this case, computer scientists being so interested in the answer that they were, they, and so confident in their, their, uh, result that they were willing to put this bounty. I think it was only like a hundred dollar bounty. Maybe, yeah, it wasn't very much. And we, you know, you also see this like with the Riemann hypothesis and with um, all sorts of things. But if you're a bad actor or you're a motivated actor like Philip Morris, why would you ever make statements about how you could find out that you're wrong? Um, there would have to be some reward to counterbalance the risk. My question is what should, what kind of reward should that be? Um, my first thought is a social reward, some kind of power or privilege, um, like governance power or something like that to kind of, yeah, something that people would, want to pay for, but isn't inherently financial. 
I love that intuition. I think I also agree. Why not financial? Just to like make it explicit. Um, because if it's financial, then it makes the cost benefit analysis really easy and you can just counterweight the other side and know when exactly to lie. Exactly. It, it ends up being this um, feedback loop from specifying what's from like having money or power. We can, you can always convert money into power at some exchange rate. So having power and being able to convert that into a control over the belief, the collective belief, and then taking that control over collective belief and be able to convert that back into power. Um, and control over collective belief also, by the way, can be essentially policy. And this happens all the time where, you know, um, I mean, right now there's 150 billion, maybe dollars in subsidies going to oil companies. The reason that there are still subsidies going to oil companies is because the oil companies had a lot of money, spent it on lobbying. The lobbying resulted in uh, them getting these subsidies. These subsidies now give them cash, which they can spend on lobbying. And if anybody were to oppose it, then they wouldn't be able to get into Congress, right? And so there's that classic example of the policy to power to money loop. We have to cut that loop on at least one of the sides, either from, um, from, from power to policy or from policy to power. And I think your intuition is right. You cut that loop from, from policy to power. You don't allow people to convert, uh, to be paid for setting the policy. Instead, they pay for the opportunity to set policy. Cool. That makes sense. Um, how, well, wait, it's crazy to you that that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's crazy to me. It's crazy to me. I say it's crazy to you. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy that to you, that makes sense. Because um, many people, upon hearing the sentence, people should pay for the ability to change policy, have an immediate reaction that's like this. It's like, no, of course you shouldn't do that. Right. I mean, it does. It does. I can see how it re... re, um, How it could boil policy down to wealth. Um, but if the policy is, if, if the wealth is subject to belief precarity, then it's not just wealth. So you can shape policy all you want, but if you're wrong, your wealth is going out the door. You could buy policy all you want, but if your wealth is wrong, it's not real. I think exactly. that's a really cool. I think that's a really cool thing. Um, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a really cool mechanism. Never, never would have thought of that because I would have gotten stuck on, well, how will people ever agree on things? I, if I want to buy a beer, I don't want him to believe in UFOs. That's just too high a bar, you know, or too low a bar, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, yeah. uh, that is worth... Let's go there next, um, because I think that's a mechanism then worth talking about. Um, Sounds good. Let's do it. The for, first, I think the thing to pay attention to is that, like you're right. So, so you can convert wealth into a change in policy in exchange for precarity. I love that word precarity, by the way. Thank you for finding that. Um, my my great pleasure. 
the because precariousness is just horrendous. Um, so you can convert wealth into uh, into policy in exchange for precarity, or you can convert a small amount of money, right? You know, uh, so, something we wouldn't quite call wealth. Um, you can convert a small amount of money into the same amount of policy change in exchange for lots of precarity. Say that again. So the second part. The, the point. The point of talking about it. The point of mentioning this is that um, we don't want wealth to be identical to influence. Instead, we want some like tensor product between between or like or like the product of of uh, amount that you risk and how risky the claims are that you're making. So, what was remarkable about Einstein's theory of general relativity? was all of the predictions that it made. It was highly precarious, right? Or as Popper would call it, it was highly falsifiable. And because it was highly falsifiable, that's what allowed us to change policy or collective belief about how the universe works. Um, so the, the and, and in fact, there's like a way to frame all of this as just, this is Popper's, Popper's falsification criteria. Karl Popper is just like, famous philosopher with, um, uh, who had this, who like argued about induction and deduction and in, in science and had to like wrote a lot about science and the scientific process. Um, and, uh, he was reacting to what he had seen happen in Germany. Um, because there was like this perversion of the scientific process. Um, and so he was like, well, what safe rules can we follow that allow us to, um, consents on what is true without, uh, uh, without external political power being the source of the conclusions that we come to. And what he came up with was what's now called Popper's falsification criterion. And it just means that you're able to invalidate certain claims. And my claim is actually that what Popper did was of course very valuable for science, but we can literally just port it exactly to, instead of talking about what should science believe, we should talk about what should, what can, what can we credibly collectively believe, right? That ultimately how we allocate our beliefs is how we govern ourselves. And that we can take this notion of falsification and we can extend it with this idea of precariousness. So then therefore it's not just billionaires that end up being the ones that get to influence policy. It is the most precarious ideas because ultimately, even if you put a billion dollars into something that's bullshit, it's going to be cut away at, I mean, that's a big, you know, junk, ch chunky, uh, uh, piece of meat that the world's researchers get to pick away at. If you're wrong, it's this funding source for them. Right. Um, and so, uh, no matter how much money you throw at it, um, ultimately, um, you, you can, you can resolve down to, um, uh, the most precarious ideas winning. I love this. I love this. I think it's, I think it's pretty doable. I think, I think this is technologically doable. Yeah. I'm into it. Um, and go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, it sounds like this kind of takes Popper's falsifiability out of the sort of institutional um, context and puts it in your wallet. 
It's in every little, it, it, it makes it personal. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, that right now what we have is a lot of uh, political agents, right? I, I think the people who say that everything is political are basically right. And I don't know for certain whether that is a feature of our, I don't know if that's a feature of our current um, political process or if that's a true feature of the universe. But like something that does seem true to me is that everybody is taking part in the, um, in contributing to our collective understanding of the world. That does seem true. And that also seems like something that we want, right? Um, so uh, if, you know, if like to, because we're on a podcast about technology and epistemology and we're allowed to talk about philosophy, like if we want to reframe um, uh, politics, we, we could just reframe politics as the process by which we perform inference on uh, what we collectively want, right? Um, that ultimately that's the role that, that politics plays and all the power dynamics are, are a function of different beliefs um, and also of different preferences. And in an ideal world, we represent all of those, um, like all of our collective beliefs boil up to, to informing policy um, instead of some select few. Yeah. I've, uh, I've heard it suggested, and this may be more than suggestion, this may be the scholarly prevailing opinion that the United States uh, government structure with federal versus state power was kind of about having policy experiments happen at a smaller scale before mm. they're instituted at a federal level, like kind of decentralizing the laboratory of, of political experiment. Um, that's that's yes. a pretty cool and kind of crypto native thought for 1770 whatever. I know, like this is why I just feel like um, like a kind of fun path to follow here. Uh, maybe that's kind of self-aggrandizing, so you know something to be careful with. But what would if the founders were if the founders had had access to the technology we have access today? What kind of governance system would they have implemented? Right, um, and um, you know it's it's impossible to know. And yet given like, like you can still feel the influence of the principles that they chose, right. And the mechanisms that they chose. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, like th th there's a perspective that some people will have, which is like, well, this is like not democracy. It's like, yeah, it's not democracy, but that, but that we don't live in a democracy, right. It's very intentionally, you know, uh, it's this representative government with, lots of different ways in which um, decisions are made because we've learned that a pure democracy is um, insufficient for good long-term decisions, right? Subject to populism and, and whatnot. Um, and, and like something that you said of like, of how then do we perform these low level experiments that then can bubble up to the higher level and this is maybe where it's worth talking about autopoetic communities and, um, and the pricing, the, like the, what, what I call the, the, um, 
payment premium for how much does it cost for you and I, or me and the uh, person at 7-Eleven to transact? Yeah, please do. I've actually never heard the word autopoetic, I think. Autopoetic means um, self-creating. Hmm. It's like cells are autopoetic because they have, they have the means to create more of themselves. Or they can Got self it. like self self replicating, um, self, um, or is it literally self creating like self self creating as well? It's just self. Okay. It's it's self creating. Yeah. Um, where like well, in I'm like right. a 3D printer that makes no, not a 3D printer that makes, 3D printer that makes itself self replicating. That would be self replicating. So like, um, um, the the some inspiration to take here is from the world of like free energy and active inference, which I'm kind of obsessed with at the moment. And I don't want to get dragged too much down that route, but um, oh, we're going to, we're going to go there sometime. <laughs> we're gonna go there maybe later. Uh, free energy and active inference is like uh, this, this idea from uh, Carl Friston and many others. Carl Friston's the most cited neuroscientist in the world about like what actually is, um, what is a living thing? Um, and, why is that the same as the laws of thermodynamics? Because necessarily, if we exist, we're not violating the laws of thermodynamics. So what we are must be identical to the laws of thermodynamics, is his argument. And, um, uh, and so what he would offer is that a, uh, a drop of oil is a... Um, is the same kind of thing. Like if you look at the universe from the right angle, a drop of oil is the same kind of thing as a human being. And um, a framing that you can put on this is that oil is autopoetic. It has this way in which it like, it self-organizes into this like structure that can define itself uh, in relation to the rest of the world. And this thing that it defines around itself is called a Markov manifold. Um, and, and basically all that means is that everything that you need, everything that the uh, oil droplet can know about the rest of the world is found on its surface. And everything that the rest of the world can know about the oil is found on the, that boundary between the oil and the rest of the world. Okay, so how is that relevant to communities. Well, in some sense, communities also have these like boundaries, right? Um, the, 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 there are people that we, that we like interact with easily because of the things that we agree about and the topics that we're interested in. And of course, people that we, uh, we, we clash with that we mix as well as oil and water. Right. Um, and so the, the, the framing of like this payment mechanism, is that it just takes that idea seriously. And that very simple idea that there are some people that you're going to agree with, it's going to be easy, uh, 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 seamless, and costless to interact with them. There's other people that you're going to disagree with and it's gonna be more expensive for both of you. Why is this a feature that we would want? Why would we want to increase transaction costs between groups that have fundamentally different beliefs and values? Well, one nice way to think about it is when we think about our um, 
uh, economic relations with like Russia. So if, if you accept that, you know, Russia has, uh, uh, you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine and, and Russia has done this themselves out of their own expression of their, uh, this like value set that they hold. Then there was a, there was a cost to us, which we're now realizing from the fact that Russia has fundamentally different values than what we have. And yet we were transacting with Russia as if we had the same values. I love this. I love this. And do you mind if I interrupt to say what? Yeah, please. I love this because it sounds like you're just revealing something that's always been there instead of creating something new. It's just having a better metaphor to capture what's already there. And boiling it to, or reducing it to, the things themselves instead of generic things, right? Um, when we think about the difference between... Uh, uh, whatever, uh, Russian, Russian culture and, and the United States, one thing that we recognize extremely clearly is that it's not true for everybody who's in Russia. In fact, it's not true for most people who are in Russia. I meet people from Russia all the time, especially like I'm traveling right now. So I, I, I meet them and I ask them about, you know, Putin and their government. And they're like, yeah, I mean, it's a shit show. <laughs> They do not support this, this, uh, this government. So there's even a distinction between um, the people that live in government and the people uh, in, in Russia and the people that run it. And in some sense, that should be recognized that in some sense, these people I'm meeting and traveling and, and, and connecting with while I travel are, we are in the same community, right? Um, and so that it's inappropriate. Uh, th this thing happened after, after, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, where a company that was producing, I think they were a software company that was based in Russia that was doing a whole bunch of work for Google. Google withdrew their support of that, that company because, of course, that company was located in Russia. And that meant that because they were located in Russia, it, that the Russian government would be able to take taxes off of it and would look bad also for Google. So it was part PR, part, you know, the, the pragmatism of some of this money is, must be going to the Kremlin. But, you know, this group, this company condemned what their country did. So it's not appropriate to think about them as part of the community of Russia. Like the, the boundaries that we've drawn, you know, or really that the boundaries that colonizers have drawn on the rest of the world does not define those groups. And, you know, we're, we're it's particularly evident when you look at, um, uh, the, the boundaries that are drawn in countries in the Middle East. And then you look at their ethnic graphs, you know, and it's like, oh, well, there's like four different, completely different uh, 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 ethnic groups in here that radically disagree with one another. And that is what you can attribute, you know, the, uh, the Iran instability, Iranian instability to, um, or obviously like our invasion <laughs> played a remarkable role in that. But um, that communities are not appropriately defined by borders. They're defined by something else. And, um, okay, so how does this mechanism encode that? The mechanism encodes it by allowing you to state things that uh, you claims or beliefs that you want to price. So for me, um, 
One claim that I would find extremely easy to price is the claim that uh, opioids are non-addictive. I believe that opioids are addictive, and um, uh, and yet, you know, if you look at what Purdue Pharma was arguing in court when um, the whole opioid crisis came forward and the billions of dollars that they made off of destroying people's lives, they were arguing, well, they're not, they're not, a, they're not addictive. This is just misuse, right? So for me, it's really easy to price that claim, the claim that that opioids are non-addictive. Now, if anybody who is being paid by Purdue Pharma in that currency of uh, in that claim, in a currency that contained that claim that opioids are uh, non-addictive, if they were to try and transact with me, it would be expensive for both of us. If I sold a product that they wanted, then both of us would pay a little bit extra. It could be a little bit to a lot, depending on how much I priced it and how much they had. If they only had currency that um, uh, uh, was filled with that claim that opi opioids are non-addictive, it would be impossible for us to transact if I also said I didn't want any of it. And of course, if they have just a little bit of it and I just don't want it a little bit, then it becomes a little bit more expensive for the two of us to transact. I, I, I really like this. Um, one of the, another reason that I like it is it makes public and obvious the need to agree. It makes it financially beneficial for everyone to work toward agreement rather than to work toward victory or partisanship. I think that's awesome. Um, my question at this point is, in this example where um, the proprietor has only opioids or non-addictive colored money mm -hmm. and you won't accept it, is there a role for uh, like liquidity providers who kind of have all the beliefs and transact between you two? Yeah, so imagine that um, uh, they want to transact with me. All they have is this color of coin that I'm not willing to accept. Um, they could send that coin to some, sure, some liquidity provider that has a bunch of tokens in their account, a bunch of different colors. It goes in there. It's just a tiny, tiny fraction of what goes in there. And then they pay me from that huge collective. But notice that the incentives are still aligned. That huge bank account, that huge bank, yeah. um, they, they, the only reason they're accepting it is because they must believe that that claim isn't going to resolve to zero, right? And so they're taking on risk, um, but maybe, they're, maybe it's not as expensive as it would have been if we were to try and transact directly. Right. So maybe they, maybe they get a fee for taking the extra risk. Yep. And that fee is less than you would have paid to somehow find another way to transact with this particular party. But the only reason it's cheaper is because it must be that all of those, you know, hundreds of thousands of tokens that are in their massive account that I don't have lots of um, uh, uh, aversion to those as well. Right. So, well, they would, they would pay, they would take the one, they would basically have contradictory 
uh, belief money. They would accept the one from the proprietor and give the one that you want to you. So they're taking the risk on both sides. The framing around this mechanism is that, now let me see, maybe I can drop this requirement. Um, the way that I'm currently thinking about it is that when you make a payment, a fraction of every single uh, claim that you've accepted is paid to somebody based on how much of each of them you have. And so what that would mean is that um, I wouldn't be able to get any pure, let's say that there was a claim like uh, uh, the speed of light is, or, or a particle will never exceed the speed of light, right? Well, that seems like one that everybody would be willing to accept. So why wouldn't the entire market only be transacted in that, that currency? Because it reduces transaction costs for everybody. And the way that we avoid this is through this mechanism that uh, pays someone with a slice of my entire account. And you can kind of think of it like um, if we stacked if we stacked cheese rounds on top of one another um, and I wanted to pay you with that cheese, instead of giving you the one piece of cheese that you like, the cheddar, we, we, we have to cut out equal proportions of every round of cheese and then pay you in a piece of each of them, right? And this ensures that um, whatever the risk is of my account, whoever I'm transacting with also takes it on. And it also saves on people having to evaluate every single one in there. Cause you can imagine that transactions, the real cost of a transaction would be having to look at every single one and be like, okay, I want this much of that one and this much of that one. So we collapse all of that with this mechanism. So it's kind of diversified in a way. Yep. So what could that be abstracted away to such a point where it feels like one currency completely in, yeah, in and, practical and, use? In the end, the user experience is that um, they, they, they just see a number in their account yeah. and they see a cost yeah. to disagree uh, or to purchase, right? The, the, the disagreement premium on this is X. Um, and they have an interface where they set their, or you and I set our, our the claims that we've priced. And, um, the, and so it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It does mean that sometimes the value of your account will go down in value because claims will be resolving, but the, it'll also be going down on average for everybody else at the same time. And so, um, there will be a loss in terms of numbers, but your, uh, if you're Purchasing holding the same thing, the, the rest same. of the community is, then it's deflationary for everybody. And so it ends up being the same value. The only difference in terms of what you'll experience when you're in the grocery store is that when you go down the line, you may have, you may see digital readouts of how much something will cost for you based on the supply chain that's, that offered that, uh, that like put that cheese in the grocery store. Because, you know, if you say, I don't want to, um, uh, I don't want to purchase anything that involved um, child labor, then it might be more expensive than companies in order to like localize those costs might like get it down to the garment itself, right? If you're in the grocery store, if you're in, you know, if you're in Walmart and you're buying jeans, then 
might be that for those genes, you know, the, the child labor uh, disagreement premium is really high. And so you might be like, oh, okay, it's normally X, but it's, uh, you know, $15 more. I'm not going to, I'm just not going to buy that. So that, that would be the only like localized way in which uh, your okay. shopping experience will be different. So it seems like I'm, I kind of want to see if we can get it one layer even more abstract so that there's kind of different levels of voluntary engagement with this. There's I, the, I just want to spend it. And there's the, I want to profit from maintaining it and finding, you know, you know improving the underlying belief beliefs of it. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm really into this, actually. I think this is the coolest idea for a stable coin that there's ever been. <laughs> Thanks. That's high praise. Um, yeah. One thing that might be fun to talk about uh, as we go in that direction of how do you get um, uh, how do you build the right interfaces? Because what we're talking about is like, what are the user interfaces? Or the, what's the user experience of this sort of token? Um, is like talking about adoption curves. How does this actually get adopted into the real world? Who adopts it and why? Um, because this is a totally useless currency if it never manifests in the real world, right? Somebody is voluntarily signing up for the system knowing that the only thing that it can do for them is lose them money and make things more expensive. So why the hell are they participating? And there might be a handful of answers to this. The first answer is that you can offer this as a, as a product um, that other companies can use to verify some sort of uh, data, right? So this would kind of be like the chain link use case. And uh, to give a, an explicit uh, example, I have a friend who's building decentralized Yelp. And this friend has to verify that the reviews are coming from real customers of those businesses that have not been paid by those businesses. Well, the amazing thing about a claim market is you, they can just hit a claim market API, make the claim. Uh, this was a real customer who was not paid. And then that instantaneously creates an incentive for people who are, you know, verifiers in the market to go and try and find out if that's the case. Now they don't have to figure out mechanisms on their end for their decentralized app. They can just hit the API for the, for the claim market and then get back that result. And then they can use that in whatever their ranking algorithms are. You know, the claim market gives a 58, you know, percent on this. Um, so we take the expected value of, the rating and the blah, and then da, 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 da. Like they, they can do whatever algorithms they want, right? So that'd be the first approach is that this is just a utility that is used by, um, you know, decentralized tools. The second approach is that this can be a governance mechanism for a company that wants, or for a community or for a DAO that wants to have a um, uh, extremely credible um, policy setting mechanism that keeps people honest, right? And so um, uh, then, then you position this as this is a product that you can adopt as a DAO. Um, and we're experimenting with it right now at Supersynchronous. So Supersynchronous is a guild structure. And a guild just means that 
um, we're all independent freelancers that work together as a collective because we get benefits from the brand of Supersynchronous and from sharing information with one another and from some of the financial stability that comes from, you know, all contributing back into one pool. But that means that we need to make decisions about where does money go, right? We have a bard, for example, um, Sam, of course you know Sam. Um, uh, Sam is He's our bard. bard. He's our bard. That's yeah. awesome. What does that, yeah. what does that mean? It, so, I mean, what does a know, bard he, do? he does, he sings songs about us. <laughs> that's what that means. That's the and best that's job. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. But he works for the collective, right? And so we have to make decisions about how much do we pay him? And, um, you know, when he does something that's, that's really cool, uh, how do we reward him and all of that stuff. And, uh, and you know, like w who should be involved in the group and all, all of those questions, those are things that you have to answer with a decision-making mechanism. The classic one is derived from the fact that we normally use corporations and corporations have CEOs and then they have boards of directors. Right. Um, and so this is just an alternative mechanism to CEOs and boards of directors. And we can just think of it as a governance mechanism, um, uh, for that. So that could be the second way. The third way that this could enter into the world is um, that um, companies, what we call greenfield companies, might want to signal the fact that they are, you know, right, right now we have a lot of virtue signaling, right, from large companies. But the virtue signaling is completely untethered from true impact. So Starbucks recently, you know, they removed straws from some of their locations. And the amount of money that went into the marketing campaign around that, you know, has to be almost equivalent to the amount of money that goes into their entire sustainability campaign overall. I'm, I don't know, and I'm probably wrong, and that's just my opinion or whatever. But it's very frustrating to me that like, okay, straws are a problem, but like, but like you're not a angel because you've just eliminated straws. <laughs> I think uh, Zizek's idea was that a lot of activism is actually about providing a release valve for people's guilt without actually changing their... Without behavior. modifying but the that's just That's yeah. just me being a psycho nerd about it. I'm not trying to get <laughs> off track into that. No, I'm with you. And so how might we... And so this is a way... This, is, this offers them additional credible signal um, uh, because... Ultimately, it forces them to put their money where their mouth is. And they can adopt this marginally. They don't have to pay everyone in the company with this. They don't have to um, uh, adopt it as a single currency. They can just adopt it partially. They can, in, they can entrust in certain claims. Uh, they can set certain stances. Could you potentially argue that the value created by being less wrong about stuff will exceed the value of the deflationary being wrong about stuff affecting your currency? Then this is my final claim is that, um, uh, so, so now we're imagining that we have this world where some people are using it because it's useful for them. Some people are using it because it's a useful governance mechanism. Some people are using it because it gives them a useful, uh, credibility signal. And what that means is that you have different groups that are adopting this. And now once they've started to adopt it, now they can transact with one another because they both accept the same currency, right? And what that creates is a micro economy. It creates the Markov blanket, right? The Markov manifold from, uh, from free energy that distinguishes this community from all other communities. 
And our claim will be that that community will do a better job at more quickly arriving at good collective governance mechanisms for themselves than they will at, to the surrounding economy. And that, uh, therefore, they'll outperform the surrounding economy. I'm, I'm known to be easily excitable, but I want to do this right now. Like, well, let's, let's hit pause and go do this right now. I'm really excited. Yeah, I love this. I love this whole thing. And what's great too is, and this is so important, is that if we're wrong, if this, is, if this isn't actually beneficial for the participants, right? If it isn't actually a better governance model, um, then we'll fail. And that's amazing yeah, NBD. because the last thing that we want to do is to force onto the world some, you know, adrenaline inducing uh, mechanism like Bitcoin that everybody buys into so that they can get rich quick. And that ultimately has unknown consequences on us and on the planet. Like B Bitcoin is quite, I mean, it's important because it gave us permission to try interesting things, but, but like, um, to me, Bitcoin is an externality, right? It's a, <laughs> it allows for uh, a lot of uh, purchases of, of goods that otherwise wouldn't have been purchased and that we might not necessarily want to be uh, untraceably pur purchasable. Uh, same, same with Zcash, um, you know, the environmental impacts. And then what's the long-term impact of having a deflationary currency as the default, the de facto standard? Genuinely, I don't know still. I don't know. Yeah. And it's not that like, like I've heard arguments on both sides. I just don't know what it does. It seems to me like inflation plays a really important role in how the economy works. Um, and so it concerns me. Sure. Um, is there a, a particular you know, direction you want to go with this or, or do I have permission to branch off? Cause you said something there that I think might take us, you know, be an interesting comment. Okay. So the idea about Bitcoin facilitating the purchase of things that we might not want to facilitate. Um, I have this kind of pet theory about technological development that, um, technological development reveals the moral cause of all of, of anything that we might call a problem because mm. as, as technology increases and, and personal power increases, we lose the ability to coerce outcomes and coerce behaviors that are undesirable because personal power increases, we start to be able to do things. And so the only way to, to prevent undesirable behavior is through persuasion is for convincing people to not do these bad things themselves and behaving in a way that doesn't encourage others to do them either, per persuading mm. others not to do them also. Um, and I think epistemic tech has a role to play here because a lot of bad things are done because people feel unheard. And so mm. they blow up something in order to get attention. And, you know, uh, to the extent that we can build things that permissionlessly guarantee that your voice will count in the conversation that matters, Maybe we can reduce some of the frustration that ends up ex exploding, literally. Exactly. Um, that like, what if, like, what if the real source of, um, of much of our acting out is the lack of a 
true channel to modify the way that, that the world is, right? Um, yeah. The, you know, the, the, there's this framing in crypto right now that's so popular, which is decentralization, trustlessness, and permissionlessness. And I basically disagree with kind of almost all of those. That like, it's not enough to just decentralize everything. Um, I, I really think you need this notion of precariousness or like you should decentralize power, um, not just like, like uh, so many people think that decentral decentralization means that like you run the system on many different computers, but that's not enough, right? It's not the number of nodes. It's like who owns all of those computers? Um, and trustlessness and permissionlessness is exactly the opposite of what I think that we're trying to work towards, which is, which is we want systems that we trust, trustfulness, and then permissionfulness. How might we give people permission to modify the world? Um, and I understand that it's generally like, it's not generally when we, when people say permissionlessness, they mean that there's no, there's no gate to get in, but I would just call that permission. How do we give people permission? I like that reframe. I like that reframe. And also trust, trustlessness, I think, has the same kind of definitional con confusion in it that uh, trustlessness doesn't eliminate the need for trust completely. It just eliminates it in a spot where it's traditionally been. Right. Um, and it moves. And, and it, yeah. And like maybe general, there's a, yeah. Maybe there's a trust, like a, 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 a trust conservation law that applies to the universe, which is that. I'll bet, always there is. I'll bet there is. Man does not live by bread alone. <laughs> wait, wait, connect that for me. Well, the implication is man lives also by faith that if you mm. have despair, if you don't even believe that the ground you're standing on exists, you're, you know, going to have, you're not. Oh yeah. Yeah. Live. Yeah. Yep. Then you're not living. Yeah. So the, the, the trustless or the trust conservation law would be something akin to, um, you always require the same amount of trust. Um, it's just, yeah. you, all you can do is you can move it around just like energy. All you can do is you can move it around and you can change its right. state. And so with Bitcoin, we have moved all of that trust to, you know, the fact that we believe that the SHA algorithm will always be hard to solve. And, um, so we've placed everything on that. Yeah, I guess that too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that's the, that is the, um, uh, that, that would be my claim is that like, we want trustful systems and, and yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think that's one of the reasons that, um, I've been drawn to the market approach of, of, uh, allocation of scarce resources because we all, because it's trust isn't going away as a, as a necessity. We just have to allocate it, optimize the allocation of trust is kind of one way to phrase what I think the problem is. Yep. I, I buy that as well. Sweet. Um, I've taken a ton of notes of things to come back to. Maybe I should look at that list in case, just in case. Sure. Not bursting at the seams. So, so far um, this has been very, uh, very fun. Thank you for exploring yeah. this with me. Me too. No, my great pleasure. I really... I really think you're onto something really cool and want to want to see how how fully it can be fleshed out because what what we're building at Idea Market is there, there are no markets in it right now. We've completely stripped the markets out and kind of started over from a much 
less presumptive angle. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen the demo that's live right now, but it's basically, it's actually more like a court of public opinion. Instead of letting people place bets, it just lets people express their opinion on a scale of zero to a hundred on a post Uh, And that post can be like a tweet length. It can be an essay, um, uh, whatever it is. And then the layer on top of that is you can stake IMO or native token on users to increase their influence over the post's overall rating. So the people you trust rate things just like random people, but the people you trust actually influence what the official rating is. And there's going to be a so million it's like liquid democracy algorithms. sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's like liquid democracy. It's like um, delegated proof of stake for information management. Yep. And nothing ever settles. It's just a track record of opinions, and uh, with like kind of this financial election layer on top of it. And we're keeping it about that simple. Um, but I. What I what I expect to be able to do in the near future is if this gets any you know modicum of adoption, what we'll be able to do is do prediction markets about public opinion. Instead of instead of saying, you know, what will this data say at this you know date, we can say what will the public believe about this particular thing in one year? And something that you said earlier. Gave me, you said, uh, like, if, if a belief is true, we can expect that eventually it will be believed. And mm. I, I'm kind of privy to that inclination too, or I, I tend toward that too. Um, and I like, I like the way you phrased it. Um, would, would, uh, w- would it be fair to say that if, if a belief is true, you could expect it to be inevitable in some respect? I don't think in and that, that might not be universal. I, I think that it depends yeah, on I agree. context. Right? I think, yeah, yeah, I, it's totally yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think what's true about all contexts is that, um, however open they are, some things that are true will not be recognized by the general public. Sure. And by the general public, I include myself, right? Um, I, I just mean like we won't we won't collectively believe it for. Reasons and those reasons will you know be be um, dependent sure, on that's whatever because we only live seventy years and we only live or seventy years, hundred years or whatever. And right, and yeah. not everything, not all true. So um, you know, one important thing is that uh, not all true beliefs are. If if we if we assume that there's this category, this top right cate- top right category of like of like it is it is true, and we believe that it is true. Not all of those are valuable. Um, and we can think of, we we can think of innumerable cases where, um, there is the location of every single, uh, gas molecule in this room, um, is the kind of information that, you know, I could hold a true belief about, but it genuinely does not matter. And so I, I think that what is important in any system is the, the, is coordinating around not only, of course, what is, is the case, but also, uh, the ones that matter. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 
but take me where you were taking me around. Uh, you're guaranteed yeah. to believe. I think it's true for our country. Um, and like, not just I can, like I can think of a lot States, of exceptions, though. Yeah, I can think, and and I think it's all the exceptions that end up mattering. And by the way, um, I also think that your mechanism would play, if sufficiently adopt, adopted, your mechanism would play a causal role role in changing uh, what came to be collectively believed. So, if everybody used the used idea market, let's say that everybody is on idea market today. And, you know, let's talk about like COVID. Um, what was something that early on was not believed about COVID? And then that it came later from our lab. I don't think everybody accepts that. Yet. Do, do something that like everybody. Oh, really? okay. oh that everybody now accepts. And everybody now accepts. Um, that it's uh, important. <laughs> everybody believed early on that um, COVID could not be trans. Sure. I mean, like, important could be one of them. Let's do, like, could not be transmitted by, um, uh, uh, in the air. Sure. Yeah. That was something that I think, yeah. Or maybe on surfaces. Um, and they then we found it was out surface that was, only for a long time. Right. Yeah. Oh, maybe that was it. Okay. Sure. Let's say that that was the case. Um, if you have a market that keeps track of collective public opinion that, like, can, can track those swings, then because now the world will remember that it was wrong, what they believed earlier on, it will give additional incentive for people to continue whatever the narrative was, right? If they really are trying to control the narrative um, or if they're just trying to avoid looking bad, right? Um, and so, um, uh, you know, it's not enough to just converge, I don't think. I think you need to... Um, <laughs> or like I, I, in other, I think the mechanisms that you institute play a causal role in influencing the reality that they live in. Right. Absolutely. Which then plays another Absolutely. causal role in influencing the mechanism. Yeah. Infrastructure is philosophy. Yeah. And that orientation is, um, is mechanics that the kinds of people that adopt a thing, cause the thing to be the thing. Um, you know, it's going to behave in certain ways. And so, yeah. you know, it's an intention to, it's an intentional design feature of the claim market. By the way, I'm not super committed to claim market as a, uh, as a term. So if, if you, if you come up with any okay. better, any better ones, claim market or anyone who I'll, listens, I'll, I'll think about does. it. I'll think about it. Um, the claim market is, uh, it, Referring to the whole stack that we described earlier. Yeah, confusingly, it, ref it refers to both the, the claim, the causal market, and then also whatever we end up using as the, the preference inference mechanism. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the um, place I was going to take us with that is that intentionally the claim market offers no financial upside. The only thing that it offers you is an opportunity to... Um, uh, uh, play a role in influencing what a collective belief of people who truly care about what's true believe, right? It, and because it doesn't offer yeah. that financial upside, those people who would show up for mercenary reasons have no reason to show up. And so we're seeding this with people 
who must be genuine true believers because all they can do is they're paying a fee to be part of this early on. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. I think as soon as this gets up and running, it needs like a newspaper or something or like a Reddit or, 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 or just participate in an idea market. It's all on, it's all on web three. So we'd be able to sort by people who also hold your claim market oh. notes and see what all the people, what the economy of claim market note holders believes. That would be cool. I'm looking now at, uh, the judges on, uh, on claim market or on idea market. Yeah. Sam is, Sam is number one on there right now. Wow. 65 people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I just love that the token is called IMO. Oh man, that was, that was my favorite thing ever. I, and I love when people appreciate it because it didn't, it didn't make people laugh as, as much as I hoped when we launched it, but oh really? man, I, I had to, yeah. I mean, I, not, not to me, not that I heard, but, um, yeah, idea I, market I came offering. Up with that I think in the idea summer. Market. I love yeah, it. You just need the IM. You just need the IM. Yeah, I, it was hard to keep my mouth shut until that was until that was launched. I just, <laughs> I'm so glad we got to do that. Um, yeah. So. I'm excited to see what can be like built in the periphery of this stuff. Oh, one of the aspects of your claim market reminded me of what I would like to do with prediction markets for public opinion in the future. And that is something that I've been calling wrongness insurance mm. uh, in the sense that like you've like, like in, in the, uh, claim market model. If there's a, if there's a prevailing belief that's being used to affect policy or, or drive action, like the COVID vaccine will be of permanent, will give you permanent protection. Like a lot of people took the vaccine based on that premise and it turned out not to be true. And if we had something like wrongness insurance, what we could do is mm. um, have bet against that being true and let the pharmaceutical companies take the other side. And so we end up taking action, not based on their assertions, but, but based on the assertions that are well insured that we get paid mm. if they turn out not to be right. This is a, and that's, this is a model that I also explored initially. I think that there's something to it. Um, the reason that I didn't end up going that route was that I became concerned that it creates a whole bunch of moral hazard. Insurance in general creates a lot of moral hazard, right? Um, I mean, insurance was created during the early days when people were, were there's actually a bunch of ship memorabilia behind me. Um, when people were, you know, shipping stuff across the, across the ocean, they would take out massive uh, bets, essentially, that their ship was going to sink. Um, and uh, people would take the other side of it. But then what would end up happen is sometimes they would just load their ship up with nothing, take out a, an enormous bet, and then they would tell the captain to go intentionally sink the ship. It had a specific name. Um, 
but the it sounds like scuttle. insurance fraud. Scuttle. Scuttle. Okay. But, yeah. That, that, that's that's when you intentionally crash a ship. Yeah. Yeah. So in, insurance fraud, right? Yeah. I don't. And um, but at the time it wasn't fraud, right? It was just a betting market. And how do like how do you find out that it's fraud? Well, you have to perform inference. And once again, yeah. you know, it's this conditional thing as like, if it went down for reasons that couldn't have been avoided otherwise, but if you do it in per intentionally then, and so how do we do that? How do we do, you know, we're back to this future key problem. How do we ensure that moral hazard doesn't show up? We must perform inference. And how do we yeah. do that without a judge? So what, what idea market might be able to do differently and see if you can poke holes in this. Cause this is part of like, part of the extrapolated, uh, you know, medium term vision mm -hmm. is given that the prediction market will be settled by opinions and not merely by opinions, but by the opinions of the people that the users have decided that they trust and put their stake in that the layers that, that it is inference all the way down. It is opinion all the way down. Um, and if by some miracle, the class, the entire class or a majority of the entire class of people who have been elected trustworthy uh, collude to falsify the, the results, then that their judgment on this issue will be on chain forever. So if public opinion continues to evolve against them, they'll all have this big loss of trust compared to the honest actors. So there's a little bit more. I would just bundle this under like, that? essentially yeah. what that means is that you, every, all the, all the like judges that are on the platform become politicians, right? And they, they are, um, and popular, like yeah. populism is the weakness of politicians. Um, yeah. that the most popular person will end up being in a position. They will be popular for reasons of charisma, not necessarily for reasons of true insight. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and then they will do whatever it is that they want to do that is beneficial to them. And that maintains their power. Um, and you know, and so, and so my, like, I want to create a world where it is considered ridiculous that we once had politicians where it is considered absolutely insane that we would ever elect a person or a handful of people to make decisions for the collective. That's ridiculous, right? Now it's fine to have experts, but that, but that anyone would like the idea of a president of the United States will, if I have my way, be this like, you know, quirky thing of history, the way we look back on monarchies. I'm really skeptical of this. I love like the, the, the radicalness and the reason I'm really skeptical is the same reason that I loved increasing the transaction costs for disagreeing. And that is, I don't, I, I think it's um, imposing something that there's no precedent for rather than revealing a metaphor for something that's already been there and helping us to like live more in alignment with our existing you know, reality that we just didn't notice before. Oh, I, I see. Mean, you're so you're you know, just saying that, yeah. like, like it's pretty natural that there end up being people that step into leadership roles, or that take on yeah, responsibility and, and for the community. That 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 trust can be objectively deserved, 
and I, I'm with and you on this. Authority what I'm can concerned be about responsibly allocated. What I'm concerned about is when there isn't a semantic tie between how much. Um, so, like, if your judges are judging themselves, right, then you have a problem. So that there there should not be a semantic tie between, or there should be a semantic tie between um, how much uh, you're trusted and uh, how you're performing. And so the way that this would work in a in a claim market model is that there would be someone like Mike, and Mike would I could follow Mike in the same way that I follow Mike on Twitter. But when I follow Mike, I get to select I get to say like okay. 10, I just want like to all of Mike's claims, all of the claims that he prices, I want to adopt those. And I don't want to do any work. I don't want to have to look at this shit. I just trust Mike. That's fine. And the reason it's safe to do that is because if Mike is wrong, it's going to be expensive for Mike and for me. So precariousness is maintained, right? I have an incentive to carefully select. Notice that that's not the case with voting. If I vote then, you know, I just want my people to win. I kind of don't care whether or not they're, it's accurate, right? Um, there isn't a direct semantic tie between how I vote and whether or not I lose money for like, you know, not understanding what a mill levy is um, yeah. and, and, and voting that the mill levy should be higher and lower. Um, so, and, then, so in your case, you have a judge. Yeah. I stake a whole bunch of money on your judge, right? And the judge is the one that's going to be making decisions in the market. But then let's say that uh, there is a way for me to, to lose because the judge, can the judge make a decision that then causes something to resolve one way or the other? Um, no, nothing resolves and stakers don't lose money at this, in this implementation. Okay. So there's just a collective belief of all the judges. Yes, uh, supported by the collective belief of their supporters, which can change sure. based on the judge's performance, but yes. And then that number, what does that end up influencing? It's just a number. It's, um, it doesn't influence anything. It's one way, a very simple way to aggregate um, some of the relevant data into something that uh, signals, signals a, an opinion about the belief. And there, there's going to be a billion ways to... Um, to potentially arrive at a meaningful number. There's, there's gonna be a competition between those who are trying to cheat the number and those who are trying to find an algorithm that evades the cheating. Yeah. Um, so I expect that to be kind of an evolving process, but if there's a so better way to do it, then there's a better way to do it. Let's imagine that like the, let's just put the clay market in the most privileged, or I'm sorry, the idea market in the most privileged position where it has, it's so trusted that it has exactly direct influence on global policy, right? So, and, and now we have our judges that we have selected. Let's now imagine a case where the global policy that's being um, influenced is, um, mm, let's say, uh, whether or not to ban Bitcoin across the United States or ban Ethereum, right? One of these. So, in that case, like when we consider that self-referential case where all the people who are uh, voting on or betting, staking on idea market um, can then influence policy and then, and then policy will then influence them. 
um, all the people who hold a whole bunch of Bitcoin will want to stake it all in, you know, their, their Bitcoin maximalists. They put all of the money into their Bitcoin maximalists. And now those Bitcoin maximalists, you know, down uh, vote the, the idea that we should ban Bitcoin. And, um, and so like for them, it's profitable to just dump money in there so that we avoid the policy being harmful uh, back to them. And it isn't an epistemic inference, right? It, we never touched epistemics. We just touched um, prior uh, preferences. Okay. Well, I, I don't have an objection, but I have a question because the rank of the judges affects the, in the, in the current model, affects that number, the IMO rating, the big colorful number in the middle of the page. So if a bunch of activists pool their money and there's not, there's not actually a way to downvote. It's only, it's only up. You can stake to increase someone's rank, but you can't stake to decrease someone's rank. Um, sure. So uh, if, they, a, if a, they, they but vote. you said, you said they bet on, on the maximalists, on the Bitcoin maximalists, yes. right? So, and then the maximalists they, set the policy. Yeah. Right. So if they bet on the Bitcoin maximalists, that ends up changing not only their weight when they influence, when they, you know, rule on that particular issue, but it changes the weight of everything else that they've ever rated. It has epistemic shock effects throughout the whole system because now the Bitcoin maximalists are actually epistemic kings of the whole ecosystem and whatever they believe about everything is now dominant. What are some externalities from that? Is that helpful? Is that hurtful? Does that protect against what you're saying or does it exacerbate it? I mean, it's, it's populism, right? So, um, you know, Hugo Chavez comes in charge of, of, uh, where did Hugo Chavez become <laughs> dictator? Uh, it was Venezuela, right? Venezuela. Hugo Chavez becomes dictator in, in Venezuela and his particular proclivities, whatever they are, like end up being, end up dominating end up proliferating. Um, so it's, 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 um, uh, it's that, that case where like for the most part, in fact, that's just a, that's just an additional attribute of the externality is that, um, is that sometimes there are issues that are so important to certain people in terms of their incentives that they're willing to mortgage the other things like their accuracy on other things in order to get this one thing right. My claim is that what we want fundamentally is that those things are unbundled. We want every single individual claim to be its own thing. It's ridiculous that, I mean, it's fundamentally ridiculous that the same party in our country that it, that is um, uh, uh, pro-abortion is also anti the, the, the death penalty, right? Like figure that one out, that makes sense. Or that I can predict what you think about guns just based on what you think about climate change. That figure that one out. Yeah. How the, how the, yeah. How the hell? How the hell? What the heck is going on? Right. Right. So, yeah. um, uh, th all all beliefs should be disintermediated and and handled as um, individual standalone. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, can you think just off the top of your head of a way to make idea market more like a claim market in the sense that there's something to lose or 
like it, 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 it kind of maintains precarity. Let's put it that way. Yeah, let's, well, let's, okay. So we have, we have, uh, we make a claim. I mean, we could just build a claim market. That'd be cool. All right. How's, <laughs> how's tomorrow? How's tomorrow? How's, uh, yeah. I, uh, I can send you the, so the one thing I'm going to do is I, uh, I believe I'm going to patent the mechanism that converts, um, uh, that does all the semantic, um, uh, causal modeling. Um, I think I'm going to patent that and, um, I'm going to, um, it like does the causal modeling in, in with like the, the game theoretic, like incentive, like fragility, I call it fragility boosting. Um, or like the you, more fragile your claim, the, the more it's listened to. Um, you may have to slow it down for me. What is causal modeling? Okay. So causal modeling is making claims about, uh, uh how the world works. So a, a causal model that I could propose is, um, that, uh, cigarettes cause lung cancer, right? And, um, you can of course then disagree. And the important thing about causal models is that they are context dependent. So, um, you know, the claim that there's a link between cigarettes and, and lung cancer, it, it is, it depends on its environment because there could be a, we could measure a statistical correlation between those two, but actually there could be a single upstream cause that causes both of them. Right. Yeah, so causal yeah. modeling is the thing that takes care of, um, of that problem. And, uh, I mean, that part is not me. I'm not smart enough to figure that stuff out. That's uh Judeo Pearl and it's, it's called the do calculus and it allows you to estimate, uh, it's called a causal estimate of the, uh, effect, um, how does it uh, account for miracles? Um, well, so a miracle would fundamentally be described as a thing for which we do not have a causal explanation. That happened. So data sure. that we know or, that happened yeah. that we cannot explain um, causally with our, whatever our latent understanding of the world is. Um, and so, yeah, that would, it, so in, in that sense, it could be a, um, uh, we would have additional confidence that something really was a miracle if we had, uh, a really good causal model of the world, right? Because it'd be data that we just can't explain the, the pillar of fire right. that comes from the sky, right? Is like, we have no natural mechanism that explains that. So what was it? Um, okay. So that's, that's causal modeling. Um, um, anyway, I, that's the, that's the mechanism that I would be patenting. That's the thing that gives us this linkage between our beliefs about the world and how the world works and, um, the ways in which it can be resolved against us, which is what gives us our incentive to get it right. I don't know. If I could avoid, and the reason that I'm patenting it has everything to do with um, the the fact that um, I watch the beautiful things that other people have put into the world and the way in which they've been used, 
and it worries me, right? So I'd prefer yeah. to do like the Tesla approach where they patented a whole bunch of stuff about motors and then they open sourced those patents for anybody who was working on um, uh, electric cars because they wanted electric cars to win, but they didn't want, you know, somebody who was making a more efficient oil rig to necessarily uh, get the benefits, so, right? So they re re so they keep the ability to deny usage. uses it deny yep. usage, but, but they let the information be yep. accessible or something like that. And if I can always give away, like, I don't like patents. Fundamentally, I think that, you know, patents are an externality. I mean, they're intentionally so. Um, they they incentivize some degree of, of creation, and then, of course, they also lock people out for 20 years from using that invention. And we've seen all the ways that that can be abused, um, you know, like with, uh, uh, like, like life-saving drugs that then are patented and then that somebody can come and purchase the drug and they, Martin Scarelli, right? Skyrockets the price 3,800%. Uh, and, um, and now people are literally dying because they can't afford it or they have to pay um, all of the money that they make so that they can just continue to exist. Like that is fundamentally wrong. And that's a function of like the way that patents exist and, and, and the ways that you can enforce them. But I always, so I, I am concerned about patents um, patents are clearly not an instance of precariousness. Um, and yet I, I can always exit to the network, right? I can always transfer ownership to the network, um, which would yeah. be the ultimate long-term goal. So anyway, that's the part that I'm patenting. I don't yet fully understand it. Um, and, uh, and I'm working with like, a, I'm working with a bunch of people to do the game theory and, 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 run simulations and all of that to like make this thing work. Um, and I don't know how to do the thing that a claim market is doing without that part. Why not? Um, so for the reason that like, like we point out with, I mean, literally what you're working on right now, this, the, the idea market here where you like delegate to a bunch of people, this is where, this is what I wanted to do. I was like, okay, this is what we should do. But it, it, it runs into this problem where you can end up with populism and it's like, okay, how do we avoid this? I mean, ultimately the reason that I became, the reason I became fascinated with this and like fascinated with externalities, because my question is how might we build a system of incentives so that it's only profitable for companies to do what's good. That was the question. And I didn't care. I'm complete. I'm completely mechanism agnostic. It doesn't have to be prediction markets. I just think that prediction markets happen to be the best way to do it. Right. But prediction markets had all of these problems. Um, and, and what that means is that you need a, you, you need a way to take into account what it is that people collectively want. And you need to take into account what it is that the, that reality actually is. Right. And, Right now, what law does is it says, this is how, you know, these, this is the law. Um, and it conflates those two things. It conflates what people want with how things are. And what I want to do is to disintermediate those two things. Um, I, and so allow people to um, uh, signal preferences credibly and, and then like build a causal model. And I think those two have to talk to one another because I, I think that the, I think that's what the, I can only offer an intuition that says, I think that that's what is required. Um, yeah. Okay. Like 
I, I, I love the macro approach here. My, my skepticism and what I, what I'm actually hoping that you can help me with is how do you like account for a thing that defies the causal model? Because the causal model is really an aggregation of the opinions and judgments of the people who made it. And then that kind of defines what the belief economy can include. And that seems lawful. That seems like the imposition of laws in a certain way. Um, so like, uh, I think what, like a specific example would be, um, well, like an, a, a good question to ask is can people who believe things that cannot be substantiated continue to believe those things, right? Or it, de it depends on what, on your definition of substantiation. Exactly. And what my answer would be that different communities will have different uh, uh, axioms that they rely on for their substantiation. And that between groups, it will be more expensive. And that within groups, it will be free. I see. I see. Okay. So it does. So why, given that you're allowing every community to maintain its own axioms, why do you need causal modeling? Um. So, yeah, this is actually a good point. It might just be that only the community that I participate in uses causal modeling. Really, what I want to predicate this on is incentives. Um, like the, the one axiom that the whole network relies on is that people don't want to lose money. That's the axiom. Okay. okay. And, um, and everything is built on top of that. And so, um, it, well, okay, there's that. And then there's like this belief that people want to represent, uh, people want to live inside of a community that's governed in such a way that's reflective of their beliefs. And so they want to influence their community, right? That's like the other thing that it expects, but it's not an axiom. If that second one isn't fulfilled, then nobody will use the claim market, right? It'll just yeah. sit fallow, unused. Um, right. So the, really the, the one axiom is that people don't want to lose money and everything else is, is predicated on incentives. And so it may just be that in my world, in my micro community, I'll rely on causal modeling and like, I'll buy into the, the axioms of causal okay. modeling. Okay. So it could be the, the claim market itself, the infrastructure of the claim market itself can be completely agnostic, but you can choose as an aspect of your currency to have a causal modeling aspect of it. Yeah. Um, the, like you can, so, if, so if, you're if right. it's federal, federal versus state, the federal, the federal level. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay. So not only am I wrong to call the claim market, a claim market, because for whatever reason, it doesn't seem quite right. Um, it's not really a market. It's more like a claim currency maybe. Um, but it's also not right to call it a causal market because, uh, you don't need causality. You, all you need is, is, uh, well, it's this precariousness is persuasiveness, like equality that's, that's that's yeah. required. It, it forces you to make statements about how you could be wrong in order to get additional signal. Um, and like, 
I would say you're more precarious if you if you put in a causal model. Like, so if you interact with my community, my community will really listen to people yeah. who input causal models because they're they're ex- extremely precise. They're testable. They have all these benefits, but you can have different wor- you know communities that don't necessarily rely on that. Yeah. All right, I totally get that. I like that because the, the causal model is an option to increase precarity and therefore uh, the perceived value, risk, and power of the currency that that community uses. Super cool. Um, the reason that I'm like motivatedly interested in in this is idea market's main premise. If they're if like in the, the way that you presented a main premise. It's that um, opinions are sovereign. Like there's no, there's, there's uh, causality, a causality, whatever. There's, uh, opinions are all there is epistemically. And I think uh, I agree. That's why I think it would sweet. Or um, beliefs. I would call them beliefs, but yeah. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, personal judgments. Um, it's kind of it's kind of the uh, uh, conservation of trust law that it's 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 not that we we have to believe something we have to trust something and it's just how we each you know allocate that that's really like the only kind of decision that we make is which which propositions to hold on to and act on and bet on and which not to yeah um, and that that the so, things that we yeah. call facts are collective like you can have such thing as a fact but that a fact is only valid within a particular interpretive lens, uh, within a yeah. particular community that, that assents to certain. That already facts. agrees on the rules on what constitutes yeah. it and who decides and all that stuff. Yeah. And if you, yeah. and if you opt out of those rules, then a thing can still be true, but it can't be called a fact in this sort of yeah. uh, defined way. That, like, um, would you also agree to this statement that there, there are, um, there is an, there is an ontology, like there is a universe that we can be wrong about. Um, I, it seems hard to argue with that. I, I think so. Yeah. I, okay. But that's just my opinion. Uh, you could be a figment. I could be dreaming right now. I have no yeah. way to prove that I'm not dreaming right now. But, but the point so, is that if you but, are but dreaming, that, that's a you are currently too. wrong, right? Yeah. If you're dreaming and you yeah, don't believe that you're dreaming, then you're currently too. wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, it, it, so existence is pretty hard to refute because then why bother? If you don't exist, why bother refuting the thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would, I would just say like, maybe that's, maybe there is an additional, okay. So I'm totally wrong. There are additional axioms, which is that like, you know, it's possible to find it's, it is possible to be wrong. And it is also possible to find out that you're wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was no in no way holding you to mono axiomness because I found it really difficult to have a single axiom too. Um, so I don't I don't see that as a, as a as a flaw in any way. Um, but basically, what I'm interested in dis- discovering is if idea markets um, opinion based consensus mechanism, which is what I'm trying to make, even if right now it's totally subject to populism and all that in this, in this instance, um, can be some of the underlying layer for the belief currency of a claim market. 
kind of ecosystem? Like, can we have this be the guts behind a stable coin? Yeah, let's see. Okay, so um, what do we need? We need, well, so um, if people buy IMO, then they can stake it. That, it turns out that uh, claim markets don't have a currency. They, they, which might be confusing because it is a currency for beliefs. But instead what you do is you stake any currency, anything of value, right? Um, and, uh, uh, and that goes into the system, right? Got it. it can be Bitcoin. It can be, um, and that just becomes, by the way, an attribute of, that can be one of the things that you can price. So if somebody is paying you with Bitcoin, then you can price the Bitcoin, right? Just like you can price any other claim. So it yeah. can be completely underlying currency agnostic. Um, so IMO can be one of those currencies. Um, um, let's see. So then I could be wrong if one of the ways that, that this is the other interface with the system is that you can make statements about how you can find out that you would be wrong. And then the system evaluates how precarious, how precarious is that uh, be wrong claim. And the more precarious, the more signal that you get off of it. And so, um, uh, and, and then signal is the thing that influences the collective uh, uh, belief for whatever communities are that you belong to, right? Um, and so a idea market claim could be a, um, could be a B wrong. I could be wrong if Sam Barton says that, um, uh, you know, it didn't rain on Thursday. And then how do you prove that he said that? Uh, it's inference all the way down. So, so then there's okay. another, there's another B wrong under that that says, um, uh, this would be irrelevant if it wasn't actually Sam that said it. Got it. So if there was, would this work? Would this work for, hmm. So we have these ratings, right? And yep. you could kind of say, let's say for the sake of practical, for the sake of argument, that above 50 is, this is true, below 50 is, this is false. Sure. If there was a sort of argument provenance chain so like, I believe A is over 50 because B is over 50. Then yeah, you could, do that. could that function as a B wrong chain where if B changes to below 50, then A changes to below 50? Or then, uh, my, then my personal judgment on A goes to below 50 or something like that? Let's see. So how do the details of the, I mean, it turns out that that building this um, uh, game theory only or incentive only uh, structure, uh, inference structure, has proven to be really, 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 really difficult, um, yeah. and very, very like precise. Um, or uh, what's the word? Like, if you change any component, then it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure. So, and precarious. Maybe. Maybe there's like some fract fractal. Uh, this to it. Yeah. Um, so the, the, I'm not even sure I fully have it figured out. Okay. I think I have it figured out to like a pretty good layer, but I can't yet implement it in code, which is of course the moment when I know I understand something. 
Gotcha. Um, nor have we run like we haven't done game theoretic analysis on it, although that's like on the list of things to do. We haven't run simulations with it, though that's also on the list of things to do. We haven't tested it in uh, in any controlled experiments, and we haven't tested it in any real world um, uh, governance contexts. So, you know, all that to say is I'm probably wrong, <laughs> and I don't know how to do it myself. But it seems like the most important thing to figure out. Yeah. Okay. So. But I sense from you, like, yeah, uh, like you're kind of like, okay. It sounds like this really resonates with the mission of Idea Market. Yeah, it really could. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel I feel a lot of similarities, and um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I I like it a lot. Um, okay. What I'm thinking is. If idea market were to launch a stable coin that loses value depending on whether idea markets judges agree with you mm. would work something like that, like you like a rebasing. So, oh yeah. Okay. So you're trying to kind of like introduce the, um, the like, uh, credible signaling aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, you would only take this stance if you believe that everybody else is also going to take the stance. Yeah. Um, a, a way that like, So like, here's how I think about what a claim market type mechanism is going to do. It's going to, uh, it's, it's a, um, it is the ultimate retroactive funding for public goods mechanism. It's a, it's a externality pricing mechanism, right? That's its point is that it builds causal models of the world. And then eventually at the end, it has sufficiently accurate causal models that it can say, had it not been for X, Y would not have happened. We wanted Y and uh, X did what they did because they expected some sort of reward, right? Or because- Wait, does that, is that still the case even if causal models are optional? Um, I'm still stuck on the larger, on the maybe more abstract level of this. Well, so like, um, I believe it's an inference that the market will make. How's that sound? Um, I believe that a sufficiently advanced market will say things like um, people are influenced by incentives. Um, if we provided retroactive funding for public goods, for, for doing good things, then more public goods would come about. Therefore, we should, right? And that these rewards should, must be, you know, credible. Um, uh, and so um, that's my claim of like, what the system will do in the limit. Uh, that's what it's doing when it does any sort of inference about um, uh, 
precariousness, right? Is it must be evaluating like, would this have happened had it not been for? Um, now that's me invoking like my causal model frame. Maybe there's a, another frame that like is, is useful. Um, but what it means is that for, uh, entities like idea market, when, um, when idea market plays a role in enabling something like a claim market, claim market retroactively can say, oh, that was beneficial. Uh, had it not been for that, we would not have been able to do X, Y, or Z and can, can retroactively allocate, right? So that might be the interesting, um, the interesting thing to play with is like, in what ways could we use the structures that, that y'all already have to, um, to, uh, to prototype the kinds of, um, mechanisms that, uh, we would ultimately want to build. Yeah. I think it sounds like fun. I love the idea of kind of subsuming all this epistemic work optionally underneath the currency that is stronger as, uh, as disagreement goes down in a certain way. Yeah. Like, can't that, always, can't always, like, that's not always good, <laughs> but that, you know what I mean? Well, it's, it's that it's, uh, it's weaker. Your currency is weaker in context where you disagree more. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. I want to play with it. Um, thanks so much for, for talking fun, extra long about it. And it's been yeah. super fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a blast. Let's, uh, um, let's love, find a way yeah. to collaborate. Yeah, let's do it. Um, we'll talk, uh, you can join idea markets discord. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll come up with lots of fun stuff. Thanks so much, Connor, for hanging out with us and, uh, cool. we'll, we'll continue to talk. Thanks, Mike. I'll talk to Is you. There, so. Yeah, you got it. See you later. Oh, were you going to say something? Well, I was going to have you, uh, plug anything that you want to plug, but I was, I can also get that from you offline and just put it in the notes. Oh yeah. Just feel free to like, I mean, just my Twitter and then probably it'd be worth throwing in the, uh, claim market prototype, uh, uh, webpage. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. We'll be in touch. Yeah, for sure. Talk to you. Bye.